Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Follow That Hearse, written by John Gonzalez. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. While trying to catch thieves, journalist Harry Horn finds catching a bullet or a blonde is more likely. One frightened blonde, eight chorus girls, a singer, and three strippers. Hundreds of rancorous reenactors itching to fight the Civil War all over again. Harry Horn hot on the trail of a stolen million somewhere on the battlefield. A dozen big city mobsters with forty-fives in Civil War regalia hot on Harry's trail. It's a recipe for excitement, sex, and lots of action. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Follow That Hearse. Chapter 1 Anyone who has been in the army knows why they put fences around army camps. It is not to keep civilians out, but to keep the soldiers in. They certainly don't expect to be robbed. An army camp bristles with weapons, rifles, carbines, mortars, machine pistols, light and heavy machine guns, tank guns, anti-tank guns, howitzers. But not until the Fort Beauregard robbery did anyone stop to think that, except on unusual occasions, no more than twenty of these guns are likely to be loaded. That lowers the odds. There are that many loaded guns in a medium-sized bank. Fort Beauregard, situated in relatively unexplored country west of Atlanta, Georgia, and south of Memphis, Tennessee, was occupied by 14,000 officers and enlisted men, at the time of the robbery. The monthly cash payroll was in the neighborhood of $1 million, which to both parties in the transaction, the robbers and their victims, was a lot of zeros. A few months before, when the figure passed the million-dollar mark, the post commander, Brigadier General Otis J. Finch, directed his G-2 to determine whether there were adequate security arrangements for handling this huge sum, the G-2 handed the problem to his intelligence aide, a second lieutenant, who called in a corporal. The weak link, the corporal reported a week later, was the period during which the money was in transit from the nearest Federal Reserve branch. By the time his recommendations reached the general's desk, considerable staff work had been done, and the project had been given the code name Operation Razzle Dazzle. It was put into effect the following month. By the 25th of April, each unit had made up its May pay roster. At 9.30 in the morning of April 26th, and then again on the 27th, 28th, and 29th, a military police convoy of three vehicles, one carrying a 50 caliber machine gun, set off for the bank. After picking up the money boxes, the MPs came back to camp using a different route each day. On three of the four days, there was nothing in the boxes but weights packed in cotton. The MPs themselves didn't know which day they transported the money. Back in Beauregard, 
They delivered the boxes to the finance office on the second floor of Post Headquarters and then dispersed. The money was now presumed to be secure. There were two guards from Headquarters Company in the counting room and the regular walking guard outside the front door downstairs. If this was the money day, the boxes were emptied on a long table and the money was counted and packaged according to company-sized units. This process could usually be completed in two and a half or three hours, whereupon the money was put back in the boxes and locked in a large safe set in concrete. No more than half a dozen professionals in the country have the knowledge and equipment to get into this kind of safe, and, being professionals, they wouldn't attempt it in the midst of 14,000 sleeping soldiers. It can't be done without noise. General Finch's aide drafted a report describing the success of Razzle Dazzle, and the general forwarded it through channels, an action he had bitter cause to regret one month later. At 3.05 p.m. on May 28th, after two successive trips with dummy boxes, the MPs delivered the June payroll, $1,027,434. At 3.45, a Negro provost sergeant presented a requisition slip at the motor pool and was issued a three-quarter ton truck. The slip was signed by the commanding officer of the post stockade. The motor pool attendants had never seen the sergeant before, but that wasn't surprising. The main characteristic of soldiers in the standing army is that they come and go. He was quite dark, neither tall nor short. Like many non-coms who have been in the army too long, he wore his helmet liner at a slight forward rake, concealing his face from the eyebrows up. He had a vaguely buck-toothed look. He wore an MP brassard and a forty-five, which later proved to be loaded. He said nothing, merely passed in his slip, and grunted when the truck was brought out. When he was seen again at 3.53 in front of post headquarters, he had three men in the truck with him. All were apparently Negroes. The consensus afterward was that they were white men, disguised. A private first class was driving. There were indications that the two soldiers in back were prisoners from the stockade. They wore oil-stained blue fatigues, the pant legs outside their boots. One had a single white stripe mark on his sleeves, where a private first class's insignia had been removed. The young recruit walking post in front of the building gave them only a glance. The sergeant dismounted briskly, as men of his rank do when they have reason to fear that they may be observed by officers. The prisoners, by contrast, took their time. They were delivering a four-drawer metal filing cabinet. They manhandled it slowly back to the tailgate, grunting and straining, and began to ease it down. The sergeant growled, whipping himself on the leg with the thong at the end of his pistol holder. Don't take all week. Snap it up. Move, will ya? One of the prisoners winked at the guard, using an eye the sergeant couldn't see. Having established that they were working under compulsion, they unloaded the cabinet smoothly and easily. While they carried it into the building, the driver slammed the tailgate and moved the truck. Upstairs, in the waiting room of the finance office, a WAC corporal was retyping a memorandum. She had made a mistake on an earlier try, and her immediate supervisor, a warrant officer named Harold Montgomery, never allowed an erasure to leave his office. A company clerk was waiting to be allowed into the presence of the finance officer, Major Clinton Peterson. 
Both looked up as the black provost sergeant entered, followed by the two prisoners sweating with the filing cabinet. The sergeant pulled several different colored sheets out of his shirt pocket and flicked them at the girl. They were stapled together with a layer of carbon paper between each two sheets. Considering the care that had gone into everything else, they were probably authentic. We're supposed to leave this and pick up the old one. Where is it, inside? There was something strained about the way he held his mouth, she noticed, and he spoke without moving his lips. All three of the men had this same look. That was the only point on which the witnesses were later able to agree. When their lips relaxed, a set of large teeth flashed into view, so grotesque and commanding and obviously fraudulent that there was no room on their faces for any other feature. It was an excellent disguise, almost as effective as a mask. You aren't allowed, the WAC said. She started to get up, but the sergeant and his two prisoners were already past. She, too, received a rolling wink from the blackest of the three men, accompanied by a movement of his lips. The sergeant opened the door. New filing cabinet, he said. Where do you want it? The two headquarters guards, boys in their teens, were half asleep. One was standing up drinking a Coke. The other was musing with his hands clasped on the muzzle of his grounded carbine. Five people were counting the cash. Two were girls, civilian employees in sleeveless dresses. The other three were soldiers, wearing neckties and webbed belts. Major Peterson, the finance officer, was in with Mr. Montgomery, sitting on the corner of the desk while Mr. Montgomery looked for errors in the battalion totals. The warrant officer's desk was concealed by a half wall and an upward extension of frosted glass. Major Peterson had signed for the money, but he wasn't obligated to do any of the actual addition and subtraction. He was unarmed. Mr. Montgomery's belt and holster lay on the desk, near the major's hip. When he heard the question about the filing cabinet, Peterson came to his feet. The two guards woke up, not nearly fast enough. The one who was already standing froze to his Coke bottle. The supposed prisoners put the filing cabinet down. One of them opened the top drawer, took out a submachine gun, and turned. Now they all bared their teeth, which had a paralyzing effect. The guards seemed suddenly terribly embarrassed and tried to pretend their carbines were something harmless, like umbrellas. The prisoner without a gun called to the WAC and the company clerk in the waiting room. Major wants you. You too. Come on, come on. We need everybody. The prisoner closed the doors when they were inside and took the two carbines. You know what this is? the sergeant said pleasantly, taking out his forty-five, which was equipped with a silencer. Everybody cooperates. Nobody gets hurt. Major Peterson was thirty-three years old. He had been a soldier twelve years. He came from Minneapolis and had had three years at the University of Minnesota, where he had been a high jumper. He was fair-haired, slender, very tan. He was an excellent dancer, a crack pistol shot, a lover of good cars. He had been tied up in a training cater during the Korean War and had never seen combat. He claimed that he missed it. He frequently said that he wasn't cut out to be a desk soldier, that he had no aptitude for red tape, but such were the ways of Mother Army. He snatched up Mr. Montgomery's gun and the provost sergeant shot him twice in the stomach. He was awarded a posthumous silver star. If the two quick pops were heard elsewhere in the building, nobody would ever admit it. According to Mr. Montgomery, who was facing a wall clock and noticed the time, 
The party of thieves finished their business in less than four minutes. In another drawer of the filing cabinet, they had an oversupply of three-inch adhesive tape, already cut to length. Their victims made the job easy, putting their hands behind their backs and their ankles together and keeping their mouths shut. Major Peterson, dead on the floor, alone required no tape. All three now fell on the money. Sweeping it from the table into the file drawers, it filled three drawers and part of the fourth. They put the submachine gun back in the top drawer and locked it. A metal filing cabinet weighs a hundred pounds empty, and Mr. Montgomery was wondering how they could lift it when it was filled with money. They were prepared for this, too. They rocked it and slid a little wheeled dolly under it, an adjustable frame mounted on roller skate wheels. They were sweating freely. One of the girls, May Adelaide McIlvain, lay trussed up beside the doorway. She was 22, and there was one like her in almost every office, as there is a queen for each beehive. Although she sat well back from her desk when typing, the space bar of her typewriter was usually concealed by the front of her blouse. Her legs were bare, and she was wearing a tight skirt, which had ridden far above her knees. The prisoner, with the phantom private first-class stripes, his face split in that horrible false grin, wiped the sweat from his forehead, stooped quickly as he passed, and sprinkled it on her white thighs. The general growled at him, and they went out. They locked the outer door and bumped the cabinet downstairs one step at a time. At the landing, they stopped to let a colonel pass. If this colonel had had business at the finance office, they might have been in trouble. But he went on to see the inspector general. Outside, the provost sergeant gave two second lieutenants a highly professional salute. The driver had the truck in position, the tailgate down. The sergeant stood aside, whipping his leg with the thong and giving his men the right amount of verbal encouragement. In the end, they needed his help to get the cabinet in the truck. That was their first false move. A provost sergeant working at the same tailgate with two prisoners? The truck drove away too fast. There was no need to hurry, for their victims weren't discovered for another hour. They drove to a deserted Hutmet area, not used since the 1961 Berlin Scare. They had cut the fence at one of the metal uprights and tacked it together with light wire. Their car was parked on a side road nearby, its hood up, several spark plugs removed. A passing truck driver had stopped 20 minutes before and had concluded that some poor soul had had engine failure and had gone into town for new plugs. It was a Pontiac sedan, three years old, stolen that morning in a neighboring town. The three-quarter-ton truck used in the robbery was abandoned behind an empty mess hall where it was found early the following morning. Although anxious to get away before the sirens began to wail, they took time to rewire the fence. They threw the filing cabinet into a brush-choked gully several counties away, having first washed it with caustic to destroy fingerprints. As for the Pontiac, it turned up the next day in Gulfport, Mississippi. Although not a record, the take was unquestionably good for a four-man operation. The best thing about it, from the thieves' point of view, was that it didn't include any negotiable securities, which have to be sold at a discount in distant markets like Buenos Aires or Macchio. There was less than $20,000 in fresh currency, which any prudent thief will burn. The rest was mostly friendly kind of money, well-thumbed, small denominational bills. 
Just before 5 p.m., a public relations sergeant on the floor below the finance office decided to go up and see what was causing the thumps he had been hearing. After that, there was such dismay at the extent of the coup that the news didn't reach the FBI until nearly midnight. Undoubtedly, this made no difference. Also, it probably didn't matter that General Finch was on the golf course at 4 o'clock while his finance office was being robbed. Nevertheless, these two points were milked for their full symbolic value by the Army's critics. The Secretary of Defense spent a few uncomfortable hours before the Senate Military Affairs Committee. The sergeant, who had waited before investigating the thumps, was broken to private and assigned to less congenial duty. June pay call for Fort Beauregard personnel was delayed until the 20th, and by then, they were almost convinced that the Army intended to make them stand the loss. Naturally, this was a big story everywhere. I ought to introduce myself at this point. My name is Harry Horn. I used to cover crime for a New York morning newspaper, but the wear and tear was so great that I switched to a weekly magazine, in the mistaken belief that life would be more serene. I don't look back on my own military service with nostalgia, and I must admit that in the weeks after the Fort Bow robbery, I enjoy the Army's discomfiture. In mid-July, the magazine sent me to Alabama, and I wrote a piece suggesting that if the bandits had any ambition, they must now be preparing an assault on Fort Knox, which would be even more rewarding. The FBI had 34 agents in the vicinity. They were trying to find out where the filing cabinet had come from, for one thing, and that kind of work takes time. The local sheriff seemed more relaxed about it. The government could always print another million. Sooner or later, he felt something would turn up. The famous Brinks Express office bandits, after all, now have ample leisure to regret that they didn't take more pains picking their friends. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Follow That Hearse. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.